Dresden, Germany, August 13, 1923. To Elsie Brown. Dearest Elsie, I hope your life and dear husband are treating you well in America. I'm afraid things are getting very difficult for us now in Munich. I know it must look like we are very wealthy, sending this letter with a five million mark postage stamp, but that is simply a reflection of the fact that money means nothing in this country anymore. The cost of everything has gone up so much that money is now almost meaningless. I have a job now, working in the garment factory. I feel so lucky to have it. So many people are unable to find work. I don't know what we would do. Heinrich has tried and tried to find work, but since he is lame from the war and cannot walk without his cane, who will hire him? There are plenty of able-bodied men to fill new job openings these days. So he stays at home and cares for Thomas and Ursula. My job at the garment factory pays me so little, but we are lucky right now. We have a one-year lease on our small apartment. Since we signed the lease, the cost of everything has risen several thousand times, yet our landlord is stuck with a lease that says we only have to pay him a thousand marks a month, which is nothing. Our lease will be over in November. Then he will raise our rent drastically, and we won't be able to afford it. It will be winter. What will we do? Prices go up so fast here nobody can keep track. We get paid every week. We must shop the day we get paid or our money will buy very little by the next day. Last week I brought my laundry basket to work. All of us women at the factory do. My friend Ilsa and I filled our baskets with marks, which was our weekly pay, and Ilsa and I went shopping. There was a line at a store. We put our baskets down in the street and walked into the store to see if there was anything to buy. There was nothing that would help our families get through to the next week, so we went back to pick up our baskets. When we got there, my basket was gone and someone had dumped all of my marks in the street. That is how little money matters. How could things have gone so wrong in our country? Every week, our goal is simply to make it to the next week. This can't go on forever. Everybody is fed up. Heinrich and I are so mad at the government that they would allow this to happen. But there was a speaker that we went to hear last weekend. It was free, so we went the only kind of entertainment we can afford. The speaker explained how Germany had been sold out by the politicians. They took the easy way out and surrendered, agreeing to pay to our enemies all the money we would need to rebuild our country, rather than fighting the hard fight and defeating them like real Aryans would do. Our great country has now been humiliated by these cowards, and worse, the Jews are all getting rich off our poverty. They bought massive amounts of property with huge mortgages. Then they worked with the banks to cause our current financial crisis. Now, while the rest of us struggle every week just to feed our families, the Jews pay off their huge mortgages with worthless money. Heinrich and I have no doubt that our Jewish landlord will kick us out in November. It will make no difference to him that we will be homeless in the middle of winter. What does he care? He has no heart. Yes, it is the bankers and the Jews that are responsible for this. My sweet Elsie, be glad you moved to America where you can work hard and live in comfort. Here, hard work will buy us food for one more week, if we're lucky. All my love, Helga.
Welcome to Nearest Fiddle, Episode 31, How to Become a Fascist Dictator. The Treaty of Versailles, imposed on Germany after World War I, placed all the blame for the war on Germany and demanded crushing reparation payments from Germany. As it became clear that the German economy was collapsing due to these oppressive demands, the U.S. favored some kind of renegotiation of the reparation payments. France, however, who had suffered so much from World War I, refused to renegotiate. Having no way to make these payments, Germany began to print ever-increasing amounts of money in order to meet their reparation obligations. The thing about inflation is there's not an immediate one-to-one correspondence with inserting extra money into the money supply and seeing prices rise. There's a delay. World War I ended in November of 1918. It took Germany a little while to get the governmental printing presses under full steam, but when they did, it seemed like magic. They were able to pay their reparations, and the government was able to begin to get a handle on their severe financial problems. But like going on a bender to escape your problems, there's always the hangover in the morning, and so it was for Germany. Inflation took off in 1923, and when it did, it exploded with a vengeance. In the 1970s, Americans were alarmed about inflation rates of 10 to 12 percent. In Germany, inflation hit 200 billion percent. That's right, 200 billion with a B. Government printing presses couldn't keep up, and it made money almost worthless. The story in our opening vignette about a woman's laundry basket being stolen while all her money was left in the street came from a story that one woman actually reported. It was the middle class that was hit worse by this hyperinflation, especially older Germans who had saved money all their lives. That money was now worthless. The poor, of course, were miserable, but they had been miserable before the war so there was no big change in their situation. The rich were hurting, to the extent that any cash reserves they had were now worthless, but they undoubtedly had land, and their land holdings were ineffective. So primarily it was the middle class that was impacted and vulnerable to populist demagogues. In 1924, the U.S. came to Germany's rescue. An American banker, Charles Dawes, devised a plan in which German reparation payments were reduced in the near term and the U.S. would lend Germany money so it could rebuild its industrial capacity. This plan, now known as the Dawes Plan, worked very well. Inflation was checked and the Germans were soon able to rebuild their industrial capacity. This led to higher tax receipts by the government and Germany was again able to meet its reparation payments without taking extreme fiscal measures like printing extra money. There's a lot I'm leaving out, but these are the highlights. The Germans had been defeated in World War I. They had fought valiantly, but, as I mentioned with the Civil War, wars in the modern era tend to be won by nations with the strongest manufacturing base, those that are able to produce the most war material and machines to supply their armies for the longest periods of time. In this sense, Germany had put together too small a coalition. 
and picked a fight with too many large opponents. It was essentially Germany, Austria, Hungary against the Allies. France, Great Britain, Russia, Italy, and Japan. This was a lot of militaries, with a lot of manufacturing might to go up against. Then, when the United States entered the war in 1917, the handwriting was on the wall. There was no way Germany could continue to produce the amount of armaments required once the full weight of American manufacturing was thrown at them. When it became obvious that they were defeated, the German army surrendered rather than being invaded and suffering the indignity of having their country and capital occupied by their enemies. By 1923, the German middle class was angry. So many had lost their life savings, small businesses had closed, and small grocers, carpenters, restaurateurs, locksmiths, and others had lost their livelihoods, and with it their sense of self-worth. It was easy to blame the army. Most Germans had never seen invading armies, making it easier to blame the generals and politicians for surrendering. But the army didn't want to take the blame, so they looked around and found that there were plenty of groups that they in turn could blame. It was, they claimed, the socialists, communists, and agitators who had weakened the will of the people and caused them to accept surrender. Although that wasn't at all the case, the army found that spreading the big lie took the blame off them. Then, in 1919, Hitler came on the scene. His message was generally long and rambling. He complained about the elite and accused them of betraying the German people. But his central message, more than anything else, was, it's the Jews' fault. This is despite the fact that there were probably never more than 3-4% to 4 Jews in Germany. In 1923, Hitler was still coming onto the scene, but was quickly becoming popular. Intoxicated by his early success, Hitler and his supporters forcibly took over a large Munich beer hall, where a leader of the Bavarian government was speaking to a large crowd. The following day, during a march on the streets of Munich, Hitler and his supporters were confronted by the police. Hitler had thought that the Munich police would join him. He was wrong. There was an armed confrontation between Hitler's supporters and the police. Sixteen Nazis and four police were killed. The beer hall putsch was put down before it ever really got off the ground. In his trial, Hitler was defiant. He had a press that would salaciously spread what he said at his trial throughout the country. And what he said was that he wasn't the one that was on trial. It was the judge, the courts, and the German establishment that was on trial. They caused the mess that was Germany. He was the one trying to do something about it. Although he was found guilty, the courts decided they would go easy on Hitler. He would spend only nine months in jail, enough time, as it turned out, for him to write Mein Kampf. During this time, Hitler seems to have realized that the way to supreme power wasn't through armed revolution. He stated, If outvoting them takes longer than outshooting them, at least the results will be guaranteed by their own constitution. Any lawful process is slow, but sooner or later we'll have the majority. And after that, Germany. 
Hitler never hid the fact that his goal was to become dictator. Anyone who read Mein Kampf would have known that. But later, talking to the masses and running for chancellor, Hitler wouldn't publicize this. Yet he would never hide it, either. Mass media was primitive compared to today. But Hitler made the most of it. You could go anywhere in Germany in the early 20s and hear essentially the same message from the Nazis. By this time, the Nazis wore standardized uniforms. By 1925, then, Hitler had built a very strong political party. He wasn't close to having a majority of Germans supporting the Nazis, but he had a very strong, closely disciplined party. His typical supporter was a worker who had lost his job, or perhaps small business owners who had put everything they had into their business and had lost everything. They were mad and were looking for someone to blame, who they could hold accountable. Hitler told them it was the Jews. Yeah, yeah, there were the bankers and the cowardly politicians who had signed the armistice ending World War I. And he had continued to blame them, but really, it was the Jews. Hitler didn't need to be all that creative in his scapegoating of the Jews. He mostly capitalized on anti-Semitic tropes that had been around for a long time, beginning with the ones the generals and commanders had started after World War I. It wasn't the valiant German soldiers that had lost the war. It was the Jews and communists who had brought a left-wing government to power that was weak and threw in the towel instead of continuing the hard work that would have been necessary to win the inevitable victory the German people had worked so hard for and deserved. When hyperinflation took over in 1923, and again during the Great Depression of the 1930s, it was, according to Hitler, the Jews that were responsible for causing Germany's financial problems. Hitler created his own imaginary great chain of being that started with the Aryan race, which, as geneticists like to point out today, was completely inaccurate. But in his great chain, Germans sat atop the rest of humanity, and the chain ended at the bottom with the Jews. Hitler also labeled the Jews as communist agitators. This might seem odd, as it was the Jews who were to blame for the German Depression because of their roles as capitalists in German high finance. But then, consistency wasn't something that Hitler ever worried about or ever seemed to bother his followers. Throughout the remainder of the 1920s, Hitler and the Nazis continued to preach a message of economic hope and racial hate, continuing to blame the Jews for all Germany's real and imagined economic problems. This one Hitler a following. It was a relatively small following, but it was very loyal and even fanatic. At the same time, almost all Germans believed after they had survived the financial debacle of hyperinflation in 1923, that the future was bright. Germany was reindustrializing, unemployment rates were improving. In 1927, unemployment was perhaps 7%, and the Nazi vote in national election was even lower than that. As long as people had hope that their economic futures were improving, the Nazis remained a fringe hate group. Then came the U.S. stock market crash of 1929. The president at the time was Herbert Hoover. He was honestly a good, kind man. 
and he is now routinely blamed for not taking the actions that would have prevented a regular depression from turning into the Great Depression, or alternatively, for taking the wrong actions depending on who you listen to. We won't get into all that, but Congress did one thing that's very relevant to our story today. They passed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act in 1930 that raised tariffs on imported goods to their highest levels in a 100 years. These tariffs had the effect that raising tariffs virtually always have. Other countries raised their tariffs on U.S. goods, and international trade tanked. This is relevant to our story because the industrializing that had turned their economy around and made life comfortable for the average middle-class German was largely based on exports. In the 1930s, then, Germany, like all other industrialized or industrializing countries at the time, went into a massive depression. The Great Depression wasn't just a U.S. depression. It was a worldwide depression that struck very deeply in Germany. You know where this is going. As we get further and further into the Great Depression in Germany, more and more Germans lost their jobs. As I've said before, one of the worst things a human can experience is the complete loss of hope. As increasing numbers of Germans were losing jobs, businesses, or experiencing declines in their incomes, they became ever more worried about being able to feed and house their families. Hope was an increasingly short supply. This gets us to an often overlooked part of Hitler's message, hope. He had an economic plan that he claimed would put all of Germany back to work. It was actually a remilitarization plan, but it gave struggling and hopeless Germans the hope they so craved. Now, with Germans in desperate financial straits, Hitler's message wasn't just for the few fringe extremists. He was connecting with more and more people. I saw a graph once showing the percentage of people who voted for Hitler, roughly paralleling the percentage of unemployed Germans in the late 1920s and 30s. You may have heard of Hitler's movement referred to as National Socialism. In fact, Nazi comes from the name of Hitler's party. Nationalsozialista Deutsche Arbeiterparty. Have you ever wondered why the term national is there? It's because this was a nationalist movement. Socialism, by its nature, has always been an international movement to improve the lives of workers around the world. Not for Hitler. This was a movement to improve the lives of German workers. And not just German workers, but white ethnically pure workers, what Hitler termed Aryans. This whole time, Hitler had been developing his cult of personality. From the beginning, Nazi propaganda depicted Hitler as the only one who could lead the German people out of their problems. He was portrayed as a kind of messianic figure that would lead white Aryan Germans to economic prosperity and restore Germany to its former greatness. From very early in the movement, strict discipline was enforced on the Nazi party. Followers had to demonstrate complete loyalty to Hitler, who of course became known as the Fuhrer, or the leader. Any questioning of his policies or teachings could lead to severe consequences within the party. The phrase, Restore Germany's Greatness, 
is one he would return to again and again in his speeches. This formula worked exceedingly well for Hitler in his speeches and in Nazi propaganda. Then, in 1932, when Germany was deep into recession, there was a national election. Germany had a parliamentary form of government. But there were several political parties, and no one could gain a majority. So, as sometimes happens in parliamentary systems during times of division, there were multiple elections. No one party can control and have their chancellor unless they can control a majority of seats in the governing body. In Germany, this was the Reichstag. No party was able to achieve that majority in 1932. So, there were multiple elections. In the second-to-last election, the Nazis got nearly 35% of the seats in the Reichstag. This was the most seats of any of Germany's political parties. It needs to be noted here that those who voted for the Nazis were voting for Hitler and the promises that he and his subordinates in the party had made to them. These promises didn't include attacking Germany's neighbors and setting off another great war like the devastating and unpopular World War I. But this is, in fact, what they were voting for, because this is what Hitler's secret purpose was all along. He just hadn't bothered to tell his followers yet. At any rate, the Nazis' 35% victory would have allowed them to form a government if they could partner with the party that had at least 15% of the seats in the Reichstag. And there's little doubt that Hitler could have done this and gained the chancellorship that he had wanted for so long. But the centrist parties he would have had to work with to do this demanded that he back off some of his outlandish racial policies, especially toward the Jews. Hitler refused to do this at the cost of becoming Chancellor of Germany. One of the other parties attempted to form a government and offered Hitler the vice-chancellorship. But again, it was less than complete power, and Hitler refused. Since no party had been able to form a coalition government to get a majority of seats in the Reichstag, a necessity in Germany's parliamentary system, another election was held in November of 1932. In this election, the Nazis did significantly worse. Looks like Hitler just blew his chances to be chancellor, or even vice-chancellor, right? Stay tuned. Now the political maneuverings to form a government began again. It didn't appear that the Nazis were going to be a big part of this, because they had won so few seats in the Reichstag. But, as they say, politics creates strange bedfellows. In the power politic deal-making that was going on, one former chancellor was squaring off against his arch-enemy, another former chancellor, and, apparently, he said something like this to himself. I know what I'll do. I'll offer the chancellorship to this upstart Hitler guy, who doesn't have all that much popular support and is kind of a political nobody. That'll give me the Reichstag seats I need to form a government. That way I win, and my arch-rival loses. And Hitler? He doesn't have all that much political support. He can be controlled. And boom, Hitler's Chancellor of Germany. Okay, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's enough for our story today. So Hitler was the highest elected official and most powerful man in a democratic Germany. But that's never what he was shooting for. Next step? Someone set the Reichstag building on fire. 
a communist sympathizer was caught and convicted of setting the fire. Was he a scapegoat? Many people think the Nazis set the fire. It gave Hitler the pretext he needed to declare emergency powers. There is no national emergency requiring executive emergency powers. Even if it was true that the communist sympathizer set the fire, it was one man setting one fire. This was not sufficient justification for Hitler to usurp plenary power. But in a pattern that would repeat itself, the people didn't stand up to Hitler when they could have done so. And by the time he proved himself to be the monster he was, it was too late. Okay, we're getting closer, but Hitler didn't have complete unchecked power yet. So the Nazis proposed a bill that allowed Hitler to make any laws he wanted. On the day of the vote, there's plenty of movie footage of this, the chamber where the vote was held was surrounded with armed, uniformed stormtroopers, and selected delegates were handed small sheets of paper. The only thing on the paper was the name of the delegate's wife and children. The message was received. Another chance to stop Hitler missed. Only one more hurdle to go. No one can be a dictator without the support of the army. The generals were clear what they wanted. Hitler had gotten to where he was with the support of the Brownshirts, the unofficial paramilitary organization of armed Hitler supporters that had done the intimidation and dirty work of the Nazis since 1922. The generals didn't like them. They would support Hitler, but the brown shirts had to go. Here's a private paramilitary organization, perhaps well over a million strong, that now thought they had a significant amount of military power in the country. Okay, Hitler is good with that. If what it took to get the army behind him was to get rid of those who had risked all they had to support him when he didn't have power, no problem. In The Night of Long Knives, the SS arrested and executed hundreds of brown shirts. Oh, and while they were at it, why not take care of a few of Hitler's other enemies as well? That's all it took. The German army now swore personal allegiance to Hitler, not to protect and defend the Constitution, not to the German state, but to Hitler personally. Hitler finally had what he had always wanted absolute power. So what did we learn in this episode? What are the steps to become a fascist dictator? Step one, Find some resentment that's festering in a large percentage of the voting populace. It doesn't have to be a majority. For Hitler, this was the resentment of so many Germans, especially the World War I veterans, at the brutal terms of the Treaty of Versailles that followed World War I. This treaty was the cause of so much of Germany's financial problems. It was the cause of so much pain and bitterness that it gave Hitler lots of resentment to tap into. Step two, raise the resentment to rage. Hitler was the master of this. He spent much time on this in his speeches. Look online at almost any speech Hitler gave to large masses of people. 
You don't need to listen to a translation. Watch for long enough, and you will see his seething anger coming out. And the audience respond with cheers and shouts of rage and kind. Step three, establish a boogeyman. Give your followers a defenseless minority to hate. Find a group that faces prejudice in any society and stoke that prejudice with everything you have. Make it safe, even necessary, to hate them. The Jews were probably 2 to 3, at most 4% of the German population. They posed no danger whatsoever. But Hitler made sure that his followers lived in fear of the damage the Jews would do in Germany. Then he turned that fear into hate against a perceived internal enemy. Step 4. Instill fear in your followers at every opportunity. It wasn't just the Jews. Socialists and the communists were going to take over Germany. The capitalists were going to destroy the economy. Germany was losing its traditional values. You name it. Whatever the issue, Hitler made sure that his followers were tormented with anxiety about all the real and perceived threats Germany faced. Step 5. Be a savior. Once you've established resentment in your followers, after you've gotten them good and scared and hating the internal enemy, Portray yourself as the nation's savior. You, and only you, can save the nation from the destruction that's sure to come. The more your followers fear, the more they'll need hope. The more they need hope, the more they will believe that you are their savior. Step six, demand complete loyalty. People give saviors total and complete loyalty. If you've done a good job in convincing people that you're their savior, they will be loyal. Demand it. Step seven, lie. Lie directly to your supporters. Do it early and often. Remember what you're doing. You're not some altruist trying to make their lives better. It's they who are a means to your ends. Here's the only real secret to lying to your supporters. Just tell them what they want to hear. Remember step five? If you've followed the steps above correctly, you're now their savior, and people will always believe a savior when he or she tells them what they want to hear. Remember how Hitler got power. It had always been his goal to militarize Germany and attack his neighbors. But he left it out of his speeches because he knew how unpopular World War I had been, and that he'd never be elected if he told his supporters this was his true purpose. Such lies were de rigueur for Hitler you would appoint Joseph Goebbels as propaganda minister, overseeing the process in which Nazis regularly lied in mass broadcasts and press releases to the German people. Step eight, convince your supporters that ends justify the means and encourage your supporters to use violence to achieve your ends. Hitler encouraged his brown shirts to threaten, bully, and use violence to intimidate his opponents who might stand in Hitler's way. Then, after he had decimated and disbanded the brown shirts, the even more feared SS did so with still more brutal efficiency. Step nine, make some kind of attempt at insurgency. Your followers will be the true believers. Their belief will be in you, not other traditional values. If you are seen to be behind an attempted insurgency, 
It will convince your believers that government is wrong and give you the credibility of being the one who will stand up to weak politicians who are working to destroy the country. Step 10. Don't be loyal to your supporters. There may come a time when your supporters have outlived their usefulness. So it was with the brown shirts. When it suited Hitler's purpose, that is, when it was convenient to get rid of the brown shirts in order to win the favor of the army, Hitler had all of the main leaders of the brown shirts, who had been completely loyal to him, murdered. There, you've done it. If you followed all of these steps to the letter, you too can be a fascist dictator and make any laws you want. We've spent a few thousand years establishing the rule of law as the basis for a civilized society. And now, in a single generation, as dictator, you can ignore all that. You, yourself, are the law. Yeah, we're in the early 20th century now, and things are bad and about to get a whole lot worse. Was I wrong about history being a long, slow climb up an ever-evolving ladder of humanity? I don't know. Stay with us. Let's see where this goes. Your reading this week is Fascism, A Warning by Madeleine Albright. Thank you, Madeleine. Her book is a great wake-up call. We should all read it. Enjoy. See you next week.